Good morning, Woodside. How are you today? It is great to see you all. It's a typical spring dreary dark day. And uh, is it still raining outside? All right, cool. Well, if anyone gets dripped on in this room, I apologize. We're in the process of potentially putting a new roof on the building because it leaks everywhere. And so I apologize. There's a couple places we normally put buckets in the room. And you might be the bucket this morning. So <laughs> we still love you. Please come back. Um, it's just a new form of baptism we're experimenting in the church with. And... But if you're new, we're so glad you're here. My name is Jim. I'm the campus pastor here at Woodside of Lake Gorion. And um, man, it's been a great weekend. Um, if you haven't been, man, pray this morning now. Uh, a bunch of men, uh, just over 300 men are up north. At our men's retreat, it's been a powerful weekend. Um, I'll speak a little bit to the end of our message about it, but man, I just, um, I don't want to uh, be too emotional, but I just saw some real spiritual breakthrough with men this weekend that was pretty amazing uh, to see in a world where... Um, yeah, men are struggling to form what they are and who they are and how they're supposed to be walking. Um, pretty amazing and profound to see. Um, and it, it's been amazing to see men in the church rising up to walk in what God has for them. But uh, before we open up, if you want to look at on John chapter uh, 8 is where we're going to be. But as you're turning there, I just want to let you know about a number of things here at the church. First of all, if you're new, we're so glad you're here. Again, my name is Jim, and we just, we're glad you took time out of your weekend to come and worship with us. If you don't even know what worship is, we're glad you're here with us um, to learn more about what it means to follow Jesus, and uh, that's what we're here for. The screen, if they want to throw that back up there one time, if you're new, we'd love to connect with you digitally. If you text welcome to that number, if you're online, you can do the same. Um, we just want to connect with you this week. I think someone will even follow up with you today to be able to connect with you in a real easy way. If not, go downstairs to the Connect Desk, and they have a gift for you as well as a first-time visitor. We'd love to just have you come, and we'd love to meet you and just get to know you a bit before uh, you leave because we're so glad that you're here uh, with us. Additionally, just a couple other things. Mother's Day is coming up. Can we just celebrate before Mother's Day all the mothers in our lives? That's amazing. Um, And around that time, we'll do more on Mother's Day, obviously, to celebrate mothers. And just want to give you a heads up. On Mother's Day, uh, we found a rhythm at Woodside of celebrating mothers. We believe that um, the gospel and scripture compels us to protect mothers and children. And so to honor mothers, we've been asking our congregation over the last number of years, in honoring your mother, um, would you give towards uh, sanctity of, of human life? And so even in your, in your, in your bulletin this morning, there's a, there's a handout of that. And over the last uh, while, through your generos gener excuse me, generosity, uh, we've been able to help uh, six different organizations, pregnancy centers uh, in and around Metro Detroit and helping around 2,000 women. Um, and it's been pretty amazing. And so, man, if you'd like to engage in that, we'd love to have you th engage with that. And um, there's a handout there. You can also go to our website as well. But uh, just coming up on Mother's Day, we're just celebrating. We're going to do it in a number of other ways as well. Um, but also, just wanted to give you a heads up, that's, a, that's there for us. As we honor moms, um, we'd love to be able to uh, support women in need and some of the most vulnerable uh, moms in need. Then coming up here uh, in a short bit, um, we have um, a number of things happening. Not happening. Um, a number of them is we have a parent-child dedication coming up on May 14th. Um, 
for us here at Woodside, I'll just be, I just want to be abundantly clear. For us, a parent-child dedication isn't any form of salvific act. What I mean by that is you're not, you know, giving your kids some form of salvation by dedicating them. We believe that, man, this is a, a pivotal time in a parent's life where you are committing to raise your children to follow after Jesus, and we as the church are committing to walk with you in that process. And so there's a whole, whole process in that. If you're, if you're at all uh, interested in dedicating your kid on May 14th, uh, see Josh Miller, our kids director, and we'd love to have you do that. Additionally, coming up um, here in the next uh, short bit, actually next Saturday, May 6th, we're actually going to do our spring serve. And so on spring serve, we do a, a ton of different stuff. We have a, a widow's ministry here at the church. We're going to be going out and caring for some widows in the area. We have some stuff going around the church. We're working with the township to get some projects together. And so we're going to go out and do our best to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And so we'd love to have you involved in that. Maybe you're in a group, grab your group, say, hey, we'd love to go serve for the afternoon or a certain period of the time. You can go to uh, woodsidebible.org slash spring dash serve, okay? Slash dash, okay? Um, go there or uh, just go on the website. You'll be able to find it or go see someone at the Connect desk. But we'd love to have you come and serve alongside us as the church. This isn't all we do. We should be leaving the, the walls of the church and going out in the community. And then this Thursday is National Day of Prayer, if you didn't know. We just want to remind you and compel you in uh, this day, man, as our nation sets aside time to pray, would you commit to pray? We always call you to pray for a number of things. Pray for our nation. If you don't know, it desperately needs it. Pray for the leaders of our nation. I don't care how you feel about them. God calls us to pray for them. For our community leaders, pray for them. For our church, pray for our church. Pray for me. Pray for your family. Pray for you. Like spend some time focusing on praying and uh, asking the Lord to do his will in our nation, in our community, in our families, in our church, and all around. And the last thing uh, would be as our golf outing is coming up, it's on May 22nd at Indian Golf Course. You can go online and find that or scan the QR code. It's on the screen. Uh, this year, we're going to be uh, dedicating all the proceeds to help prevent human trafficking and supporting our human trafficking organizations, the one in which I just was in Nepal, as well as local ones in Metro Detroit. And uh, it's a great way for us to kind of fellowship together, but also like support an amazing cause to prevent uh, the travesty, which is human trafficking um, in the name of Jesus. So, Cool. Well, that was a lot, so let's just pray for a moment so we can like get all that out and focus uh, here for a second. So pray with me. God, thanks for today. Thank you for your word, for the text we're looking at today, for the beauty of story and how it affects our hearts and our lives. Uh, thank you for all those sitting here and those online. Uh, you planned for them to sit under the sound of my voice, whether in person or online, that they might be changed in um, in real ways for your kingdom and for your glory uh, today. And so we ask that you do it. Holy Spirit, move among us in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, John chapter 8 is where we're going to be. We've been in a series. If you're new to our church or you haven't been for the last number of weeks, we've been walking through a series called Essentials, Why Truth Matters, walking through the Apostles' Creed. As the Apostles' Creed is a formulative statement, it's not Scripture, put together by the early church and uh, church fathers to lay out really what we believe as followers of Jesus, and this is truth. I mean, even back in the day, it was something that they would ask someone being baptized, do you believe this, and quote the Apostles' Creed. It's been formative for the church for centuries, and we just wanted to walk through it as in a day when truth really doesn't matter, and your truth is your truth is your truth is your truth, and absolute truth is kind of out the window, wrestling with the fact what is the truth of God's word, and how does it affect our lives, and how should it impact us in the way that we live? 
And so we walked through a number of different things. We're coming to the end of that. We got one more week after today. And today we're, we're, we're walking through the statement, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Now, how many people celebrate that we get to believe in the forgiveness of sins? Pretty amazing, isn't it? It's awesome. But before we get there, I, I, I want to talk about forgiveness and what it really means. Do you understand what forgiveness means? When, when you look at Scripture, really the whole idea of Scripture is wrapped up in debt. I mean, I don't know about you. I've thought about this many times. It would be awesome. Like if you won the lottery or something, I don't play the lottery, but I've thought about it a few times. But um, it wouldn't it be amazing if someone just came to you one day and said, hey, I want to do something special for you. I have a lot of money, and I'm just going to forgive you of all of your debt. Wouldn't that be awesome? I mean, maybe I'm the only one who has debt. Okay, cool. That, yeah, it would be pretty cool for me that like someone came to me like, I want to be so generous with you. I'm going to pay off your house. I'm going to pay off your car. I'm going to do whatever. You have school debt. I'm going to pay off that. And there's a freedom that you would like walk in like, this is pretty profound and pretty amazing. I would be jumping for joy. Maybe I'd try a backflip when I get a second leg, like whatever it is. I mean, I would be overwhelmed. I mean, there's a reason why we, we say, right? When we talk about scripture, the whole idea of forgiveness is wrapped up in the idea of debt over and over again as it's spoken of. I think that's honestly when we say you're forgiven of your debt because it's the idea that when I borrow against a bank, they have something to hold over me. They have, they, I, I owe them something. See, the same, things, uh, the same thing's true with us, man. If someone offends you and you uh, are, are, are offended by them and you need, they, you need to forgive them, you have a debt against them. They've harmed you and now you're holding it against them and the forgiveness comes when you wipe out the debt that they owe you and give them the free grace that is given to them. See, this is what forgiveness is for us as followers of Jesus as well, that we have been forgiven by God, he wiped out a debt. You might have heard the, the saying that it's justification. Like, man, when I give my life to Jesus, I am justified. And you maybe heard the phrase, that justification means just as if you've never sinned. Well, that's a great illustration, kind of a pithy truth that you can remember, but it's only half true. There's more to the equation. See, the beauty of the forgiveness of God, it's not just as if I never sinned. It's not as though, man, I had a whole debt that I could never pay in my lifetime. I did never work enough. I could never give enough. I could never do enough to pay back the debt that I owed. And God, by the free grace and the mercy that he gives us, forgave me of my debt. And it's just as if I've never sinned. But not only... Did I owe the debt to the bank of God? If you want to follow the illustration, he also came and filled my savings account so full that I would never be able to spend it in my lifetime. And that is what we call the righteousness of God. So not only was I forgiven of the debt that I owed, I gained the righteousness of God. So imagine that for a moment. Some comes to you and says, man, I want to forgive you. I want to pay off all of your debt, but that's not it. Man, I want to give you enough money that you can retire today, do whatever you want, and in this lifetime, you will never spend the money that I'm giving to you. This is what we have in Christ Jesus. Forgiven of a debt we could never pay and given the righteousness of Christ. And 
And what we're going to see today is just that Jesus forgives sins. It's what he does. He, he forgives sins. And there's a lot wrapped up in that statement. I mean, the first of which is that, man, you just have to recognize we actually have sin, right? If you're here today or you're watching online and you don't realize that you have sin, I'm just telling you just for a moment, uh, watch yourself for the next week and you'll realize that you quickly do wrong. Whether it's lying, whether it's coveting, whether it's stealing, whether it's whatever, you do wrong. And every one of those offenses that says that sin is literally what it means is it misses the mark. I don't know if there's any other archers in the room, but I, I love archery. And all it means is that like you will never be able to hit the bullseye perfectly. You're all around it. Maybe you're really close, but you'll never be able to hit that. You've missed the mark, which is perfection. And that is the only way we're connected to God for all of eternity is that we are perfect and we'll never attain to it. So we have a sin problem and we need a forgiveness that only comes from God. So we, man, we celebrate the fact that if you're in Christ, you've been forgiven. It, it, there's something beautiful, and we'll get into it, and, and freeing and uplifting about forgiveness that's only found in Jesus. But I just want to ask you this, and maybe just think about this for a moment. Biblically, what does forgiveness of sins look like? I gave you some of it, but like, what does that look like practically in our lives? What does forgiveness of our sins look like? Well, we're going to look at that today. In John chapter 8, if you look with me again, John 8, we're going to start in verse 2 together. Look at a story that you probably know well. Um, of a woman who was brought to Jesus. So let's read it together, the first um, few verses down to verse six. It says this, it'll be on the screen as well. Early in the morning, he, Jesus, came again to the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and he taught them. Verse three, and the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? Verse 6, this they said, to, they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger in the ground. And so, man, what does forgiveness look like? The first thing is that we actually have to be awareness. We have to be aware of our guilt. We have to be aware of the offense. We have to be aware that there's actually something that's not right. And, and that happens in their story, right? It begins with Jesus teaching in the temple, which Jesus often did all of the time. But it's significant that he's here in the temple. Why? Because this is where the Sanhedrin met. If you know anything about the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin was like the supreme court of Israel, and so really where they're sitting is in this passage, in essence, they're in a courtroom sitting in the midst of all the people. Jesus is gathered because he's a teacher and many people like to hear his teaching. So they're gathered around him. And just imagine for a moment, he's sitting there, he's teaching. The, the crowd begins to part and they come in and they're pushing everybody out of the way and they bring this woman before Jesus. And they want to. It says they're doing all this because they want to catch Jesus because Jesus just grinds them up the wall we got to find a way to get this guy. And they force their way past everybody. They bring this woman to Jesus. And they say, man, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. And they present her before him. Now, it's interesting, right? They say, what should be done with her? They want to know, should we, this is what it says in the law. Like in the law, it says that we should stone her and the man. Now, that's, that's actually quite key. It says that they should be 
stoned, right? And what they're doing is they're trying to push Jesus into a corner because on one side, right, the law says what it says. And if he doesn't follow that teaching, if he doesn't say, okay, let's stone her, pick up a big rock, like he's now diminishing the law and saying like, hey, um, I don't follow actually the law of God. Now we've got him. But if he goes the other route, right, um, he, he, he actually follows it, right? He, now he's, he's not doing what he said. He says he comes to save sinners and he's coming to be with sinners and that's what he's doing. So now he's pushed into a corner also that, hey, he's not only taking the law of Moses lightly, but also he actually doesn't love sinners and he's not actually forgiving. And he's, so they're pinning him in a corner to try and pit him either way to get Jesus. And man, I just, I just love it because Jesus is the master at all that he does And the whole scenario is this kind of act of entrapment, bringing charges against the woman. You can tell that it's entrapment because there is no man there. Where's the man that was caught in adultery? Because in order to catch someone in adultery, there had to be a number of witnesses. There had to be two or three witnesses that would have been present to see the act. You couldn't just make an accusation. And man, if you saw the man, where's the man? So they're just painting a scenario. Maybe it's a real scenario. And they're actually using a person as collateral, able and willing to stone her just to catch Jesus. Can you see where they're at, right? So instead of answering the Pharisees, we'll come back to this moment. I love Jesus. He doesn't say anything, probably frustrating to them. He kneels down. Imagine if you're, you ever been there, you're talking to your kids and they just kneel down and they start playing in the dirt. Like this is what Jesus is doing to them. He kneels down and he begins to just write in the dirt with his finger. And we'll come back to that in a moment, right? But in order for forgiveness to be extended, like the woman had to know what was going on. She had to be aware of her guilt, right? And the woman was actually guilty because Jesus processes this with her. So she's guilty. She's there in front of everybody. So just paint the picture for a moment. Imagine we're sitting here this morning and I'm teaching and you're uh, somewhere else and like the elders of the church bring you in in front of everyone and be like, this woman or this man has been caught in X, right? And your sin is ever present before everyone. Imagine that just for a second. I'm sure all of the sins that you know in your head, you don't want everybody in this room to know. And it's, oh, blatantly aware to her, her situations. The accusations have been filed. She's aware of her situation. She knows she's violated the law. She knows she's wrong. She knows she's guilty. She's been exposed. All of this, right? She knows that she's guilty. She's aware of her brokenness. And she needs, really, she's at the mercy of what Jesus is about to say, right? And I said, the point is, is that in order for forgiveness to happen, you have to be aware that you're guilt of your guilt, or that you have to be aware of the offense or whatever it might be. And it's interesting, isn't that so true just in the whole act of forgiveness in general? Like, how can I for, uh, extend forgiveness if I don't know or I'm not aware of the fact that I've offended or hurt someone, right? I mean, how many times, uh, I'll just be honest with you, Christians aren't real good at it. There's countless times in this church where somehow I offended someone and they just leave the church. I'm like, man, where did that person go? I reach out to them like, well, uh, well, that one thing you said really offended me. And I was like, why don't you tell me? I, was, I feel so bad. Or like they leave the church because someone else offended them. And I'm like, well, did they know that you they offended Well, they should. Or just in general life, like just walking through life, like 
So many family dynamics is like, man, I'm upset at them and I'm not going to speak to them anymore, but I won't tell them why I won't because, right, in order for someone to extend an apology for forgiveness to happen, there has to be awareness of guilt. There has to be awareness of brokenness. Man, I learned awareness is such a pivotal thing in life. I mean, before I did my sabbatical, like coming up on two years from this last summer, I did almost four months of 90-minute counseling every single week. And all of it was about awareness. I spent literally months just trudging through my life and my soul, what my counselor called awareness work. Like, why do you have these broken pieces of your life? Why do you have these wrong ways of living? Why do you live like this? And a lot of it really, I'll just be honest with you, stems back to trauma, big T trauma, little T trauma, whatever it is for you that has been broken in your soul. And a lot of it, it causes problematic living, coping, whatever it is in your life. And the key to solving the problem is being aware of where the problem came from. And so for me, it took months of like trudging through my childhood and through my life and my relationship with, with my dad and relationship with my mom and relationship with, with people and the relationship with the church and relationship with all these different things to finally learn, man, this is why I'm jacked up. But it took awareness that I had to be aware of the brokenness in order to actually fix it. Man, forgiveness can only be sought, experienced, when we're aware of something, right? It's a prerequisite for forgiveness. Man, if you're here today or you're watching online and you call yourself a follower of Jesus, you can remember the time. And I got to see and experience some men this weekend where their eyes were open for the very first time of their awareness that they have offended a holy God in brokenness and sinfulness and they were able to respond and receive forgiveness. If you're here today and you know Jesus, you have a moment in your life where you became aware of your brokenness and your need for someone to fill the gap. And his name was Jesus Christ. And man, you were aware of the fact that for all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God, and the word all there in the Greek, I always say it's free, it literally just means all, like everyone. The man, we've all fallen short, and, and this woman is now experiencing what each one of us experienced in life when we experience forgiveness of God, is that we were aware finally of our brokenness, and now it's time to respond. So look with me in verse seven. And as they continued to ask, so they're not really happy with Jesus just painting in the dirt, he stood up and said to them, let him who has... Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Can you imagine that it just backfires? Someone just whipped a stone across the room. I always think about these things. And look what it says. That's not what happened in verse 8. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. Now this is significant. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older, the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. In verse 10, Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. You see, what does forgiveness look like? It's not just an awareness of your guilt or your sin or your brokenness, but forgiveness actually removes all condemnation. 
What we experience in Jesus is when we are forgiven, all of condemnation is removed. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees aren't really happy with Jesus, they said. They're not okay with them just muddling in the dirt. And so they continue to press on Jesus. Like, man, what are you going to do? What decision are you going to make? And Jesus is probably quite annoyed with them as they continue to press on him as he's riding in the dirt, right? And they don't care about the woman. They actually don't care whether she sinned or not. They just ultimately really want to condemn Jesus. And Jesus finally speaks, and a phrase that we often throw around within Christendom of like, don't judge me, you have sinned, cast the first stone. That's a whole different sermon, but Christians are called to judge one another. It's actually biblical, whole different sermon. Over and over again in the New Testament, we're called to hold each other accountable and judge the way we're living according to Scripture. That's just free. Now, judgmentalism is totally different. A spirit of judgmentalism is a whole nother thing. But in the right way, knowing and loving a brother in Christ and wanting to see them flourish in the name of Jesus with grace, that's a whole different animal. But Jesus says, man, he says this phrase, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone, right? And they're trying to trap him, but this is his response. And Jesus doesn't come to abolish the law. It's not like he's throwing away the law. He's applying it here now. And the only person, this is what's amazing about the passage, the only person in the room that is without sin is actually Jesus. The only person that can truly judge because they have not sinned is Jesus. Everyone else in the crowd has sinned. So in essence, he's saying, everybody out. None of you have None of you have the platform or the pedigree to be able to forgive sins. None of you have the the pedigree to judge. Only I do because I'm the only one in the room who is without sin. So if I choose to pick up a stone, I could actually stone her. But in light of all of who he is, he does the opposite, right? He he doesn't condemn her at all. You got to think about who's there. It's quite fascinating. The man that was committing adultery with her was probably present. You feel that guy? (laughs) He might have been the first one who left. Right? The men who witnessed the adultery were probably present. The ones that maybe some even believe purposely trapped her in adultery just to use her against Jesus are standing present. And can you imagine the weight of what they feel in a moment? Not one of the accusers was free from guilt. And Jesus puts the whole dilemma back on them and says, man, are are you without sin? In one statement, he's elevating all sin to the same platform. Man, in Christendom, we do a really poor job. I have like the sin of whatever, right? People in the church, gossip flourishes. But we look on a world and condemn them for some sexual act, for some other thing and be like, I got it all together because I don't do that big sin, but I only do the little ones. Can I just tell you, they're all heinous in the eyes of God. Like your lying tongue is the same as someone else's pornography addiction. They're all the same in God's eyes. They have different ramifications on your life. Yes, but there's not an elevation. In one moment, Jesus puts them all on the same platform. He says, hey, man, he who is without sin, she's in adultery. Well, you guys... Have your own issues. And what does he do? He doesn't, man, he doesn't condemn. 
Jesus says, man, before you pass judgment on this woman, do yourself some self-evaluation. It's reminiscent of Matthew chapter 5 when Jesus says, man, hold up. Don't take the speck out of your brother's eye when you hit them in the face with a log that's protruding out of your own. First, remove the log from your own eye. Do some self-evaluation. Man, it is good to remove the speck from your brother's eye. It's actually biblical. But do it, like, not in, in a, a way that, like, I am such a hypocrite that I've got a massive log that's going to hit them upside the head when I try to pluck it out of their eye. It's reminiscent to do some self-evaluation before you go down that road because you have a judgmental spirit, right? And he says, own your sin. And he says they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. Now, why that happened, we're not exactly sure. We think maybe the olders is the most authority, and so they leave one by one, older to the, to the lesser. What's fascinating is I think that there's more to the story than just Jesus saying he is without sin, leave, or throw the, throw the first stone. It's fascinating when you look at what Jesus is doing when he's writing in the dirt, there's an Old Testament passage that they would have known well. These are the leaders of the spiritual world at the known. In order for them to be in this level of leadership, they probably would have had most of what we know as the Old Testament memorized. Not only memorization, but application and, and many different rabbinic teachings, right? And so when Jesus does something, we might just not know it. It might pass right over our head. For them, it is blatantly apparent. And so you read a passage like Jeremiah chapter 7. 17 in verse 13 that says this, O Lord, in a condemnation, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Now just think about that for a moment. Who are, what are they doing? They're bringing a woman to put her to shame publicly in front of everybody and use her as a tool for their own benefit to entrap Jesus. And now listen to this passage again. It's fascinating. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those whom, you, those whom turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. There are many different commentators that actually believe that Jesus was down on the ground writing their names in the dirt. Oh, you think you're without it? Tommy, yes, that's what it was. <laughs> Just think about that. And they drop their stones quick and walk away as they are condemned. The shame they brought upon someone else was brought upon them in a moment. And after some time, as everybody walks out in their own shame, Jesus stands up to the woman and approaches her and says, woman, where are they? And has no one condemned you? And she says, no one, Lord. And Jesus says, and neither do I condemn you, right? Now the accusers are gone. They're the only person that remains. And you remember for a moment why Jesus sent, was sent into the world. God sent Jesus what? Not to condemn the world, John 3 but to save the world through him. And it's fascinating when you look at it because the sin of humanity, we stand condemned before God because of our brokenness and sin, but the good news of the gospel is that Jesus came to remove all condemnation through his substitutionary death on the cross for us. 
It's interesting when I was thinking about this. Jesus removes all condemnation. We live in a culture that is quite opposite. We live in a, can, in, in a culture that cancels. And you have one thing in our culture today, you're canceled. There's no returning for you. You're done. There's no redemption. We've lost the idea of redemption in the world today, and we've, we've really gone on the whole side of condemnation. Like, man, you've made a mistake, and often it's fascinating to me to watch someone else condemn someone else and cancel them, and then shortly after, they experience the same thing because their skeletons in their closet come out because we all have them. And man, it's not getting much better in the church. How often do we who have experienced freedom and forgiveness in Christ openly condemn others? When we see a Christian fall, we see a, a Christian leader fall, and be like, I knew it, that person was so prideful. Rather than being like, God Almighty, I am so broken that my brother in Christ is walking through brokenness. His family's torn apart. They're experiencing all kinds of trauma and brokenness. Man, I just want to pray for them. I want to love them. I don't even agree with them. But you know what? They're an image bearer of Christ. I don't want to walk with them. Or how much even in the church today do we show grace or do we show canceling, condemnation, and judgment? Oh, that the world would see a, a, a picture of what grace is that the church would provide. And I'm not talking about just freedom to do whatever you want. We'll get there in a moment. But I'm just talking about grace, not condemnation. I firmly believe, and I'll get there in a moment, there's people in this room that cannot freely experience no condemnation and forgiveness even of themselves because of the experience that they've experienced from other followers of Jesus condemning them and Satan utilizing other brothers and sisters in Christ to have them live in their shame and their guilt rather than the freedom of Christ. Because there is what Christ says, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, I just want to put that caveat. If you're here, you're watching online, and you might be like, man, that's awesome. That is such good news. Thank you, God. There is no condemnation, right? That's awesome. Well, I'll tell you, if you're not in Christ, there's a lot of condemnation. The difference from moving from condemnation to there is therefore no condemnation is what is in the middle called forgiveness, the canceling of debt. And if you're here or you're watching online, if you have never yet responded to the call of the gospel that Christ came to forgive you of your debt, died on the cross, rose victoriously so that you could walk in freedom. If you've never responded to that by placing your faith and trust in God, in what he's done, in Christ specifically, then you still sit in your condemnation. But praise God for all of you in this room and all of you watching online that have experienced the free gift of salvation. You now, there is no condemnation. For you who are in Christ Jesus, man, it can walk in freedom. I mean, that's the last thing that I see in the text is that forgiveness re uh, renews a dead life. I would say it maybe a bit uh, differently as well. Forgiveness gives life. Man, I don't know if you've ever been forgiven. It's just life giving, right? In verse 11, and Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Forgiveness. And then he says, go, and from now on, sin no more. This, this had to be so life-giving to this woman who was about to be condemned and stoned, right? So, for, it's so freeing for us, right? As, 
all of you in this room, if you're a follower of Jesus, there's a moment where you're dead in your trespasses and sins and the forgiveness and the mercy and the grace of God is what gave you life, right? But then he calls us to something. It's not just freedom, just do whatever we want, right? He says right after, now go and sin no more. He's not like, man, just do whatever you want. He calls us to a life of holiness and following after God in a right way. So, man, all of us in this room, we don't have condemnation. We don't live in our sins. We don't, man, we, we have moments where we're convicted of our sin and then we give them to the Lord and then we walk in freedom aiming to live after the ways of God, sinning no more. So if you're in the room tonight, maybe you're on the other spectrum. You're like, man, I love the grace of God because I can do whatever I want. And there's, where there's sin, there's more grace. No, Romans actually says, God forbid. And I think if we made a more literal translation, it might be harsher than that. Like, no, that you're, you're trampling on the grace of God, right? He says, go and sin no more. But we can't get those things switched up. He doesn't say, go and sin no more so that I won't condemn you. He says, I don't condemn you. Now, go and sin no more. And that is pivotal to what we believe about the gospel. Christ came first, forgave, forgave us, and now we walk in freedom because we love Jesus. We don't walk trying to strive after loving God so that we can experience freedom, right? It comes in proper order. God forgave us, therefore we walk in newness of life. We walk in freedom. And um, a couple months ago, I, I heard a story that wildly moved me um, of a police officer in Jacksonville, Florida. His name was Ike Brown. I don't know if you've heard the story. He was on the news back in 2002. Ike Brown was a police officer in Jacksonville. He had a son that was 21 years old. Long story short, his son was a great kid, good kid. He was at his friend's house, and um, he was playing video games. And for some reason, there was another kid. He pulled on a gun, and he shot Ike Jr., his son, and another kid many times and killed them. That night, about four, or that morning, excuse me, four o'clock in the morning, his brothers that were police officers came to the door and he's like, man, I wonder who's coming to the door. And he wasn't too, he wasn't too like, hey, this isn't abnormal. Maybe they need me. And they say, hey, Ike, we need to have a conversation with you. What alarmed him is that the chaplain was there and he said, hey, why are you here? And they said, unfortunately, Ike, your son was killed. And he said, man, in my whole life, I said, if anybody ever did anything to my kids, I would kill them. And he said the first time that he saw the young man that had killed his son in the, in the courtroom, he said he cried because all he experienced was love for him. And he said, I even cried out to God. He was, a follower of Je- he was a follower of Jesus and he said, God, what's wrong with me? What's so wrong with me that I love the young man who killed my son? And so the verdict came, and this young man was sentenced to life in prison. And he went up to him, and he hugged him, and he said, I forgive you, and I love you. And man, if that's not a powerful enough story as it is, uh, years later, a couple years later, he would often write letters to this young man in prison, and then he would crumble them up and throw them away. And he'd write letters, and he'd crumble them up and throw away. And then one day, he got the, the gumption to do it. So he wrote the letter. He said he often started them by saying, man, I hope it's as best as it can be where you're at. And he wrote him a letter. And then at the end, he said, I have a favor to ask of you if you'd be so nice to fulfill it. I really miss my son. And I, I, I request that you would fill in the gap for my son. 
that you would be my new son. And he sent the letter. He said he was anxious he would never hear back. And just a couple days later, he got the letter back from this young man. And the young man wrote this elaborate letter saying, man, when I went to prison, I said, if I, God, I'll believe in you and I'll accept you as my savior if I hear from Ike's dad. And that day, he accepted Christ as a savior. Seven years later, Ike adopted the killer of his son as his own son. In 2009, they still have a relationship to this day as he spends often time in prison with him, spending time together. I can't tell you a greater illustration of what we get to experience in Christ. We murdered by our sin God's son. And in return, we get to be God's children. What an unbelievable, an unbelievable grace that we get to experience. Forgiveness, it brings life. Just like the story of Ike Brown brought life to a young man even through the death of his own son, we get to experience that, that a weight is lifted off of us, that we get to experience new life in Christ Jesus, that Jesus came, right, to cover our brokenness, our sinfulness, and experience the newness that we have in Christ. So I just ask you, have you experienced life? I'll start at the, the base level. Have you experienced freedom in Christ Jesus that only comes from us experiencing the forgiveness of our brokenness and sins? Man, if you haven't today, respond to Jesus by calling out to him. I would say secondly, man, no condemnation, and I'm speaking to a few people in the room, I know that. No condemnation means no condemnation, Right? And I know for a fact there's people in this room right now that are holding on to condemnation. There's people in the room, what's fascinating is that we're not looking for forgiveness of other people. We can't bring ourselves to forgive ourselves. There might be people in this room that at one point they can't forgive themselves for having an abortion. They can't forgive themselves because they had an affair and they blew up their family. They can't forgive themselves because, man, my, my kid walked away from God because whatever reason, but I blame myself because I was too busy with work and I didn't spend enough time with him and I did my own thing. There's, there's people in this room that are holding on to condemnation that Jesus pinned to a cross. And you're allowing Satan to have a debt on you holding your mind and your heart and your soul captive rather than experiencing the freedom of Christ because he already covered all of your brokenness. And we're holding on to condemnation, man. I'm gonna invite Taryn to come out and a couple others and they're just gonna sing a song in a moment. And man, even this weekend, I got to see some of this that men got to experience and see for the first time, and their brokenness is not something that holds them down and holds them back, but there is freedom and newness of life in Christ through the forgiveness that Jesus offers. I mean, the same thing is true today for you. And I would say another step, there's people in this room that are holding on to something against someone else. The fascinating thing about forgiveness that's amazing is that there's a powerful parable. I don't have time to read it. I'm already over time. 
Where, where an unforgiving servant that is forgiven so much goes out and finds someone who, who owes him very little and puts him in prison. And God says, man, if you can't forgive other people, you won't be forgiven. That the point of the fact is, is that I've been forgiven. You've been forgiven. Such a massive, overwhelming, amazing debt. How can you in this room? I know it's hard. Man, I've walked through with some really hard things with people before. Man, you tell me I have to forgive someone that... that that abused me? And God looks back and says to Peter, seven times seven. That doesn't mean you have to be their friend or close to them, but man, there's people in this room that need to release a debt they have over someone else because God has released a huge and massive and overwhelming debt in their own life. And man, as the band, or just a couple of them, sing a powerful song called Clean, that we were made clean, experiencing the forgiveness and the power of what we have in Christ. Man, I just want you to sit. If nothing else, base level, man, just let's thank the Lord that I had a massive debt. And like a father forgives a son for murdering his son, I've been forgiven and brought into the family of God. But man, I'm telling you, there's some work God needs to do in people's lives, in this room. You're holding on to condemnation that God has forgiven and you need to release it before the Lord today. There's people in this room that you can't bring yourself to forgive that family member, that friend, that pastor, whoever it may be, and God is calling you to release that today. And and I wasn't going to do this, but I just feel like the Lord wants me to, that maybe in this space, in this room, as I pray, you don't have to do it now. I want everybody to remain seated. I'm going to pray. They're going to sing. If you're in this place and you're really wrestling with some of anything that I said, I want you to stand up where you are, and I'm calling on brothers and sisters in Christ that are mature in Christ to come towards you, lay their hand on you. They may not know what's going on. They don't know what it is to pray over you that the Spirit of God will work in such a way that you will be able to release that to the Lord today. So as I pray, just stand up where you are and allow some brothers and sisters in Christ, we don't know often enough, to come and just pray over you as we sing. Let me pray with me. You stand if you are where you are, that brothers and sisters might be able to pray over you. Let's pray with me. God, thank you for forgiveness, for what we get to experience in you. that there's grace and there's mercy for today. It all wasn't just used up on the cross, it's extended today in this place. And there's people standing up all over this room, Lord, that can't bring themselves to forgive themselves, but you've already forgiven them. God, there's people in this room that don't have the courage to stand up, but man, they can't release a debt that their father owes them, but isn't even walking the earth anymore. And it is hindering their walk with you that's hindering their experience of true forgiveness. God, would you do the work that only you can do? The work that brings a father to forgive his son's murderer. That's only from you, God. And so God, we lift these people up before you. We lift everyone in the congregation before you that we just set our affections and our minds and our hearts today. And the fact that I sit, we stand wherever we are today in any place that we are online, we rest in the fact that we, if we are in Christ, are clean. 
We're not dirty. We're not broken. We're not banished. We're clean. Only by the, the power of God. So God, do a work in your people as they sing as only you can in Jesus' name. Amen.